I want to preach about, continue preaching about revival, and I've simply called it a community saturated with God. A community saturated with God, and you'll see, <clears throat> see why I've chosen that in a short while. But I speak to you this morning as someone who's, um, I've never experienced full-blown revival myself. Um, I've been involved in various ways with churches for ever since I was a child, but when I was saved when I was 12, and I've been serving in, 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 in church since I was in my 20s, so it's been quite a while. And I have seen outpourings, I have seen God do some amazing things by His Holy Spirit, and we've certainly lived through some of those things in the different churches that we've been a part of. But uh, I've never really experienced full-blown revival, as I'm going to describe to you this morning. And so, I'd like to kind of point back, and I'm going to recap in some of the things that I said a couple of weeks ago, because I know that uh, many of you have been on holiday. But I, I do want to just say this too, that if you could go onto the podcast and listen to some of the messages that have been preached, I think God has been doing something amazing, because uh, at the beginning of the holiday, Petri preached on having a heart for the poor, and uh, that's something of personal revival, is when you do have a heart for other people, not just yourself. I think one of the great tragedies of, of, the, of the modern church is that it's so inward-looking, so self-seeking. So as long as we're okay, as long as we're being blessed, it doesn't matter about those that are, are suffering. And you might say that's harsh. I don't think that is harsh. I think much of the Western church is self-obsessed. And uh, God wants to change that. Part of personal revival is learning to have an outward focus on focusing on other people, not just my needs. All right? And then Mike preached on truth. Uh, I mean, on trust. And I've listened to this message on, on, on the podcast. I was completely encouraged. Uh, well done on climbing the ladder, Dooks. Very good. Without falling down. And then after that, if I remember correctly, um, uh, Tox preached wonderfully on knowing God and uh, having a relationship in prayer and trusting Him and knowing Him. And then Kurbis preached on living for beyond yourself. That faith 101 is basically just living for yourself, but God calls us to much, much more than that, much higher levels of faith as we seek Him for the good of others. That's really what He wants. And uh, I, in the, in the middle, did a little introduction in terms of revival. But for me, these are things that are about revival. This is, what, this is evidence of a revived heart. A revived heart is living for others. A revived heart is trusting God. A revived heart is full of faith. And... A small heart is inward-looking. A small heart is focused on me, my family, and myself, and surviving, and just having enough blessing for me. God doesn't want us to live like that. God wants us to live so much bigger than that. I think something of the worship this morning was just encouraging us into that, wasn't it? God wants to unstop some things in our hearts. God wants to light the fire again, that we are outward-focused, big, dreaming community. I want to say to you, one of the most stifling things for me is small-mindedness. I can't stand it in my own heart, and I can't stand it in other people, that we can't dream big, that God wants to do something big through His church. Amen? And we're part of that. I'm not saying we're the only expression of that, but something big, something that's going to impact this community, something that's going to radically change St. Albans, and we need to be bold enough to dream these things by the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk to you this morning about not being focused on ourselves. And I think something of revival, when we talk about revival, we can have one of two approaches. We can either focus on God and His sovereignty and what He wants to do, or we can focus on ourselves and what we must do to bring revival. The one is gloriously liberating. The other one is stifling and incredibly exhausting. If it's all up to us to bring revival, it's incredibly small-minded and exhausting. All right? And we don't want to live there. 
And so I want to, do want to point you back to uh, James chapter 4, which I started with a couple of weeks ago, and um, the first 10 verses, but I'm just going to focus on the last couple, where it simply says this, James encourages us, and he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And you know, we've been preaching into this for a while. James is preaching to this, this, this discouraged church, a scattered church that's been persecuted. And he's trying to encourage them. And now he's saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to change your mind about some things. If you remember the, the, the first week I preached, I, I quoted out of Tacitus and Suetonius, these Roman historians. And I just, God spoke to me when I was reading that, where it talks that, that quote of... Um, where it says they, Nero humiliated them even further and he put animal skins on them and he, he, um, he threw them to be torn to pieces with, by animals. Remember that, that scripture, that um, quote? And that's the context that James is writing into and saying, be full of joy when you fall into trials of different kinds. <laughs> and I thought to myself, my trials are just minuscule, tiny, insignificant, little trials compared to being ripped apart by animals in the Colosseum. It brings a sense of perspective when you see from the light of history what James is writing into and what he's trying to encourage in, in Christian believers. And so I don't say that to nullify any of our trials and any of our pain. I say that to encourage you that what you're facing in your life now, many others have faced it as well. And part of becoming part of that great uh, company of witnesses that is talked about in Hebrews, the, great, the saints that have gone before us, is sharing in something of the suffering that happens when you're called into being a Christian. And Jesus has set us free, and all of our sins have been taken upon the cross, and all our suffering has been taken upon him. I understand that completely. But we still have to live our lives in these fallen bodies until Jesus comes back and we, we have a glorified body one day. Amen? And then you will be able to walk through walls. And then you will be able to be teleported all over and not have to pay airfares. It's true. That's what a resurrected body can do. That's what Jesus did. It's part of what uh, we have to look forward to. Okay, so I say that as an introduction, and I just want to now have a look at some quotes of different people that actually have lived through revival and how they describe it. Okay? As I, as I said, I haven't lived through full-blown revival myself. But um, there's a church historian called John Buchanan, and he says this. He defined revival as the imparting of life to those who are dead and the imparting of health to those who are dying. Isn't that wonderful? In revival, God imparts life to those that are dead and health to those who are dying. And I want to say to you that I'm, I don't say this uh, arrogantly or condemningly, but most of the church in the, in the UK, I would say, is discouraged, it's backfooted, and needs revival. Most of the church. There are a few pockets that are full of life, but actually most of the church needs to be revived. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, he was part of the Welsh Revival in 1904, uh, sorry, Jonathan Edwards, uh, American Revival, 250 years ago, he said this, he said, in, t in terms of defiling revival, he said, it's God's major means of expanding his kingdom. 
Okay? He uses revival to do that, to break open new boundaries for his kingdom. And as I was thinking about this, it became clear to me that as, as you try and define what revival is, you begin to describe what revival is. It's like the two are interlinked. And it's very wonderful in a sense because it means that revival is not an academic thing. It's not a, a thing that we kind of just define. And it's a thing by the Spirit that happens in the people of God. And it's, it's exciting and it's messy and it's all over the place and you can't really define it. But these people are doing the best as what they can. Duncan Campbell, in 1949, there was a revival in the Hebrides up in Scotland, all right? This defined revival said revival is simply a community saturated with the presence of God. And that's what my where my message title comes from, a community saturated with God. I don't know about you, but I would love for my life to be characterized by that. That when people come into my home, they say, this home is saturated with the presence of God. This church is saturated with the presence of God. This family, when you come into there, there's something about them that you cannot say and define, but it is the presence of God. Amen? Charles Spurgeon Who's heard of Charles Spurgeon? He's a famous Englishman, ministered in London in the 18th century. He had, he, you know, he preached to an average of 6,000 people a Sunday. And we think the mega church is a new phenomenon. New phenomenon. 6,000 people every weekend at the tabernacle down in London. And he said this. He said, a true revival is to be looked for in the church of God. A true revival is to be looked for in the church of God. In other words, in you and in me. That's where we look for revival. And I think so many people think revival is a shortcut to getting people saved. If we could just have revival, uh, then lots of people could say, actually, revival, Spurgeon says, is looked for in the people of God. In other words, it's your heart that's revived. It's my heart that's revived. It's your heart that's passionate for God. It's you that's on fire for God. It's me that's in fire for God. And that is infectious. And when that starts to happen, a community is transformed, a church is transformed, and then the whole church is just on fire for for Jesus, and that begins to impact others and the community. As I've been reading about um, this last month, I've been reading a number of books, one by a guy called Brian Edwards. He said this, he said, often revival comes after periods of great pain in churches. Revival comes in, in, in countries that have had a, experienced a great, great degree of moral decay. God decides to do something. And he starts to prepare different people, different men. Some of them are men and women. Some of them in complete obscurity that no one has ever heard of. And through these people who just have a passion for him, for his kingdom, something is released and the fire is lit. Amen? Douglas Brown, there's a the Keswick Convex, um, Convention up in uh, the Lake District in 1922. Douglas Brown, he's a, a guy who was used powerfully in revival himself. He said this, revival is a church word. It has to do with God's people. You cannot revive the world. The world is dead in its trespasses and sins. You can't revive a corpse. But you can revitalize where there is life. So for those that are born again, they can be revived. And we want to, I want to look at a whole lot of things about how the church goes into decline and then God has to revive it. But we'll have to look at that in the next couple of months. Evan Roberts, Welsh, Welshman, Jill. 
My mission, he said in the Welsh Revival, he said, my mission is first to the churches. When the churches are aroused in their duty, men of the world will be swept into the kingdom. I love this line. He said this, a whole church on its knees is irresistible. Isn't that beautiful? A church on its knees is irresistible. Amen. And we need to be trusting God to do some of these things in us. Um, Reese Jones also preached in Wales to 1904, and he said if there was a slogan for the Welsh revival, it was this, bend the church and save the people. <laughs> in other words, when the church gets on, it knee, on its knees, when the church starts to seek God, when the church says, Lord, I need you, when you and I say, God, more than anything, we desire your presence in our lives, something starts to happen that impacts the world. Amen? So, I do want to just recap now, secondly, three points I made a couple of weeks ago. I'll do it briefly, and then I do want to get onto my main section this morning. But why do we need revival? Well, I've alluded to these things already. The first is because of our personal condition as God's people, our personal condition. And I quoted a guy called Scotty Smith. I just want to read the quote again. He said this. He's an American. A young guy leads a church in, in Franklin, Tennessee. He said this. Until the day Jesus returns... Our natural drift as the people of God will always be towards spiritual atrophy, not spiritual entropy, towards self-serving idolatry, not God-centered worship, towards using God, not serving Him, towards salvation by us, not salvation by grace, towards being coddled, not being changed. Towards church as an ingrown club, not church as a missional community. Towards the protection of our tribe, not welcoming all of the nations. Towards hair-splitting factionalism and ugly schisms, not diligence in preserving the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In short, I ask God for revival because only the power of Jesus' resurrection is sufficient to keep sinner saints like us from contradicting the gospel even more than we do. It's incredibly challenging, I think incredibly astute, and it puts its finger right on the button. <laughs> That's why we need revival, because of our personal condition as God's believers, as, as, as uh, the people of God. And then secondly, the, we need revival because our, na our nation needs an overflow of that into the nation. And I, I chatted a little bit around the riots and um, those kind of things. And I, I don't want to talk much about that again. Please just go and listen to the, 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 the podcast. And, and, um, and I said some things around that. But I do want to just say this again, that I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced, I'm convicted of this, that the church in the UK needs a revival. <laughs> it needs to be revived. You and I need more of Jesus. Revived Churches are born out of revived leadership that have a, a, a commitment to the gospel, a commitment to being spirit-filled, a commitment to living a, um, a life that pleases Jesus in every way. And that becomes infectious. It's not all just about leadership, but I'm saying if the leaders aren't revived, if there's no evidence of, of the spirit in people who are ahead of us, the church is going nowhere. Jesus is our vision. Absolutely. Jesus is the one that we serve, but there... Whenever you read the, the, the Old Testament, uh, go and read it this week. In every major junction of the history of Israel, God prepares men and women to break open something. 
He does. That's his way. I don't know why it's his way. It is his way. Jesus chose 12. And with 12, he completely transformed the whole of the first century church through 12 men and women. Well, through 12 men and some women who absolutely believed Jesus was who he said he was. And he took, took him at his word and just obeyed him. And boof, the church was birthed and completely transformed the culture. That encourages me deeply. And so that's why we're talking out of James. It's this warm logic of the gospel calling us back to a primary relationship with him. And I trust you, you are being encouraged. Because I believe God, it's a word for, for me, the word of God to the church in the UK at the moment is one of wooing, it's one of drawing, it's one of calling, it's one of personal transformation, it's one of personal intimacy, and I believe true revival is that. And as that personal intimacy begins to happen in our lives, it transforms us, and it transforms our families, it transforms our kids, it transforms our friends, it transforms families, and then communities, and then communities transform nations. That's how it happens. And I said this, I want to say it again. Colossians 1.27. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope for your marriage. Christ in you. The hope for your parenting. Christ in you. The hope for the school that you teach at. Christ in you. The hope for your business. Christ in you. The hope for those that are, are lost and dying and broken, those that have been throwing bricks. Christ in you. The hope of glory. It starts with us. It starts with the church. And I believe the revived church that beats with divine passion will be marked by a couple of things. It will be marked by God-centered worship. It will be marked by an intentional commitment to the Great Commission that this is not about us. This is about those that still do not know Him. And I've still got faith in my heart. We bought 600 chairs. (laughs) 600! Sometimes I think, God, I made a mistake. They've just sat there at the back. And we've only used half of them. Come on, guys. Have you got faith with me this year that we can use all 600? Come on. This is not just about me. This is about us. This is about this community of faith. It's about all of us allowing the Holy Spirit to do something radical in our hearts that believes in for something incredibly big. Do you believe that we can, we can see that, that, that school come through? Man, what an what a incredible opportunity to minister into Hatfield. Thank you, Carol. Now, I know Carol. She's the most conservative lady. And if she can clap, so can all of you. I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean quiet lady. That's, that's kind of sense. All right? Harry Reader, another guy I've been looking at recently, he said this, he was talking about um, the 18th century and the Great Awakenings that happened in America, and he said, um, it seemed as if the whole world was going to church. And I put it to you a couple of weeks ago that perhaps he said that because the reality was the whole church was going into the world. The whole church was going into the world. And the question is, why don't we see that kind of outpouring today? And I, I challenged you a couple of weeks ago, and I want to say it again. I think the uncomfortable truth is that we don't really love one another, nor do we love the lost as we ought to love the lost, because we really don't know the love of Christ ourselves as we ought to. And so, and this is where you're going to either love me or hate me, and I'm taking the chance right now. 
And so the reality is we far prefer the comforts of sleeping in on a Sunday. The reality of uh, family leisure, sport, career, we far prefer those things over loving the lost, the broken, the things of the kingdom, and the things of the church community. And our priorities are clearly reflected in how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and they are an uncomfortable barometer of our hearts. And I believe the church needs to be revived. This church needs revival. It does. I say it as one leading the church, leading the team that leads the church. Let me get all my terminology correct so I don't offend anybody. All right? That's already impossible. I've done all of that already today. But anyway, that's what's going to transform the, la- the landscape of the society, a transformed church. You and I transformed from the inside out. We've been singing it and saying it for months now for, and trusting God for it. You and I transformed from the inside out. That's what's going to transform this community. That's what's going to transform the church. And I said thirdly that um, God promises revival, and that's why we can ask him for it. And we're going to have a look at that in the next while. But I want to, I want to just try and look at this this morning for the next 15 minutes. What brings revival? I mean, that ultimately is, is, is a big question. What brings revival? And I do want to look again at something of church history. And I think something of how we understand revival and how we understand church has been affected by the last 300 years of church history. And so I do feel it's right. I could look at the Welsh revival. I could look at the 300 years of the Reformation, which was a revival. We could look at the early church. And we might look at some of those things over the next while. But the, the, the two things that most illustrate what I'm trying to say are the first great awakening in America in the 1700s, and the second Great Awakening in the 1800s. And I want to have a look at those two things, and England is connected to both of those in in a most amazing way. So, because they reflect a way of seeing things, and we are living in the aftermath, if you like, of the second Great Awakening, and I'm not sure all of it is positive. Right? And I'm, I'm going to put a case to you this morning, and you make up your own mind. I hope I hope some of you will agree with me. But if you don't, I'll pray for you, all right? (laughs) That's what Paul says. He says, for those of you that don't agree with me, I'll just pray for you anyway. But anyway, so the first Great Awakening in the 1700s, um, it started kind of, England was connected with it because Whitfield here started having a revelation of the gospel, and he started preaching in the most amazing way. And then he went across, and he was called the Great Itinerant. He traveled a lot. And so he went across to America and the the eastern part of America, in the 1730s and 40s. And there was, in the, in the church at the time, there was this dissatisfaction with the dryness of the Anglican church. It was moralistic. It was pietistic. It was legalistic. It was, it was, it majored on function. It majored on what we must do. And people started to get dissatisfied with that. And what that did in the church, it bred great complacency in people. It bred a lack of passion. It, bre- it bred discouragement. And so people were just kind of, reticent, saying, well, I can't be like that. I can't, I can't live like that, and so I'm not going to try anyway. And if you read some of Wesley's, uh, I encourage you to go and get a good uh, book about, for example, John Wesley. And his whole, his whole journey was one, he, he used to rigorously fray, uh, um, fray, <laughs> pray and fast. That's why I said frost, fray. He, he used to give himself to those things three or four times a week and get up at all hours of the morning and beat his body. And he was really into trying to do stuff to please God, to live a, a holy life. 
And then he met Whitfield, who had this amazing, amazing revelation of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus. And he had rediscovered some of these great truths of the Reformation that we are saved by faith. We are saved by grace. They're all, our, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. There's nothing you can do to please God. He loves you perfectly when you were dead in your sin. He loved you perfectly, and he loves you still perfectly now. What an incredibly liberating place. And so that began to fire this kind of first great awakening. And um, there were the two Wesley brothers who ministered here in England, along with um, George Whitfield. And uh, then they started to minister also as they traveled to... Um, the eastern seaboard of the United States. And why, why it's, it's very interesting to look at the first Great Awakening is because it happened at the same time as the Enlightenment. For those of you that have, have studied history, the Enlightenment was a, was a, a period in our, in, our, in our history where um, people began to think philosophically about the role of individuals in society. And so they said, well, we can, we can understand the universe by logic and science and reasoning, and we, we can understand it as individuals. And so at the same time, there was going on in this church this great, great uh, coming back to the Reformation truths that actually you and I can have a relationship with God that is personal. It's got nothing to do with church dogma, the way that the church has always functioned. It is a personal relationship. And they began to discover some of these beautiful truths. And so some key guys, Jonathan Edwards, he was a great American theologian, thinker, evangelist, who ministered in the eastern part of, of the, U, the, the USA for 10 years. And his, one of his most famous sermons was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he delivered that in 1741. And it sparked the revival in uh, the eastern part of the United States. And the whole emphasis was that salvation is a direct result from God and it can't be attained by human works. Anyone heard of the Puritans? The Puritans emphasized human works. And uh, Edward said, it's not about our works, it's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about his work. That's what we need to major on. And then I've already um, talked about Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. And um, then I want to jump forward. So that's, that's one paradigm of how we can understand revival, that it's something to do with the gospel. It's something to do with what God does. It's his awakening on our, on our hearts. It's, it's, it's motivated by him. He wants to pour himself out, right? Emphasis is him. Second great awakening. We jump forward about 100 years to the 1800s. And uh, there was a fundamental transition in the way that people started to understand, uh, for want of a better word, religious life. Um, the early church in the 1700s that I've been describing had a reformed Calvinist tradition and had majored on the depravity of humans, our absolute desperate need for God and His work in our lives, and that we are saved by faith. What happened now, in the 1800s, there was a greater emphasis placed on our responsibility, what we need to do, that we must choose God, that we need to assert our free will. And so, in other words, we can choose to be saved or we can choose not to be saved. So the emphasis now shifts off the sovereignty of God and that he, he intervenes in our lives and it becomes all about what we must do. We must respond to God. Da, 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 da. The emphasis is around us. Okay? The positive side of the second great awakening is that uh, because of this, the result of slaves being freed and the role of women, the second great awakening saw great release for women in the church. And women started to serve in a way that they'd never served before. And also uh, African-American 
people in America because of that was a very, very positive thing that happened. And you can't talk about the Second Great Awakening without talking about Charles Finney. Now, Charles Finney was a man who lived from 1792 to about 1875. He was a Presbyterian. He was a highly controversial figure. Uh, he was a Presbyterian lay preacher. He never had any official, uh, any um, seminary training. And I read a, a paper by a guy called Dr. Michael Horton, and he said this. He said, the disturbing legacy of Charles Finney. He, he, called, he called his legacy disturbing. He said, he's the tallest marker in the shift away from Reformation theology or orthodoxy, which was evident in the First Great Awakening under Edwards and Whitfield, to Arminian, indeed, even Pelagianian revivalism, which is evident from the Second Great Awakening to the present. So I want to just look at what does he mean by Pelagianian? Well, Pelagius was, was a, a person that lived in, he was, a, he was a ascetic, and he lived around 350 AD. And what he said was, he introduced this new thought to the church. He said, actually, we don't need any, we don't need any help from, from God to, to live our lives. That's what he said. He, he said, we, we don't need any help of the Holy Spirit to live in our lives. All we need to, man is sufficient in himself to fulfill the law. That's what he said. He said, all we need to live a good life is that man has it. And so we don't need any help from God to, to live a, a good life. Okay? And uh, so he, he, he disagreed with a guy called Augustine. You know, Augustine, one of the church fathers, who talked about that we all have relig- original sin, that there's something in, our, in us that we inherited from Adam. He said that's not true. We're not blighted by that. We actually have all that we need in ourselves to please God. And so he was declared a heretic by um, the Council of Carthage uh, around that time. And so his interpretation, he so overemphasized the doctrine of free will. He said, we can do anything in ourselves. And he completely undermined the sovereignty of God. You understand what I'm trying to say? And so that's why um, Horton says Pelagianian revivalism. In other words, it's revivalism that is centered on us, what we must do, what we need to do in order for people to be saved. I'm not denying that Charles Finney had a most dramatic conversion. He certainly did. He said this, and I'm quoting him directly. He said, uh, one day I experienced a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost, which was like a wave of electricity going through me, and it seemed to come from waves of liquid love. And so he was a lawyer, like I said, so he went to his, his clients the next day, and he said this, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus to plead his cause, and I cannot plead yours anymore. <laughs> so he was radically saved. He was, and he had this sense of calling and, and, um, and that God wanted to do something through him. But what I'm trying to say to you is that when you, when you read some of his popular sermon titles, one of his most popular sermons was called Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. You see what I'm saying about the emphasis? Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. And so whenever Finney preached, he had this one, this one question, can this message get people saved? Can this message get people saved? And um, he, he, he had many, many revival meetings across America. And uh, he had what he called new measures. And these are things that he wrote himself. He, ha- he had what he called the anxious bench. The anxious bench. So what he would do was call people out and make them sit in a corner on the anxious seat to contemplate their lives contemplate how much they needed God and how much they needed to accept Him. And so, in some senses, that's the birth of the, some of the techniques that we see in the church today. I've been in many meetings 
Just raise your hand if you feel God speaking to you. And so you, you raise your hand. And then the guy says, okay, now some of you that have raised your hands, if you really feel that God is upon you, just stand up. And then the next thing comes. And now I want you to come down to the front. And now you're already feeling like completely embarrassed. And you, you thought you just got, you were going to respond to God on your own, and now you've been called out in front of everyone. And some of these techniques are un- unhelpful. And I'm not sure that they haven't undermined what the gospel truly is. Because for me, the gospel is truly this. It's Christ revealing himself to you right now. And so wherever you're sitting, God can speak to you right now. And we don't need techniques to convince people. It's good for insecure preachers to have lots of people respond and come to the front. And I've done a good job. People have listened to my message. You understand what I'm trying to say? So I'm not knocking the intention of people. I'm just saying we need to be very careful in what we do. I believe we do need to lay hands on people. I believe we do need to minister to people. I want us to have some ministry today. But I believe we must be free of any kind of manipulation in how we minister to people. That it truly is the work of the Holy Spirit. So, I believe that this kind of revivalism has undermined the traditional way of doing the gospel. Because traditionally, the, the, the gospel was preached in local churches. It was preached faithfully over periods of time to individuals and families, and families were transformed, and that's how the church worked. With Finney, what happened was, he said, we need to major on meetings. Big meetings. And you, he, he said, you can have a revival anytime. All you need is to do a couple of things. You do this, you do this, you have these techniques, and people will get saved. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It's a very, very subtle emphasis for me. I don't hold to it. And so he's always trying to get people to make a decision. Have you ever thought of this? Why are there so many Christians, Christians that got saved that are no longer part of churches and are just living their lives? Why do you think that is? Because I believe this, if you are genuinely saved and you have a revelation of Jesus that is absolutely genuine, nothing will take that revelation from you. I believe it has something to do with this. Because I believe there are preachers all over the world that are more interested in getting people to raise their hands and pray a prayer than they are seeing the gospel formed in those people and transformed from the inside out. Now, many of you are going to hate me. I hope some of you will still love me. I'm convinced of these things. Preachers are more interested in getting people to respond to something than they are to see the gospel formed in those people. Okay. And so uh, we now have a highly individualistic, selfish, self-centered evangelistic, evan- evangelical church in the West. We do. So in other words, I'm going to put it bluntly. Go to the church that has the best coffee. Go to the church that has the best worship. Go to the church where you can have your friendship needs met. That's the kind of church you must go to. doesn't matter necessarily what's being preached. As long as you feel good, it's fine. That's the kind of church the West is full of, those kind of churches. I want to say to you, I believe that something of revival is going to transform that. Where it becomes not about us and our meetings, it becomes about Jesus and his church. Are you with me? 
And so I want to finish with five things that I believe are evidence of revival. I don't, I, I'm not saying that these, we need to do these things to bring revival, but there's a guy called William Sprague who wrote a book called Lectures on Revival of Religion in 1832. So he was living in the midst of these, um, these great outpourings, and he was experiencing for himself. And uh, there's a, in this book, there's a chapter called General Means for Revival. And in other words, things that help to facilitate revival coming. And I want to summarize five of them, okay? And they're the primary means that most people agree on. These things are evident when there is revival. You can see these things, these five things. The first is, very simple, extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. When you are revived, you want to pray. This is not legalism. This is just reality. If you don't have a prayer life at the moment, I want to ask you just to repent, to say, sorry, God, help me by your spirit to pray. Not force yourself, because as soon as you try and force yourself, you know what's going to happen? You're going to not wake up tomorrow at 6 o'clock, and you're going to feel guilty. And the cycle just starts over and over and over again. What is going to help you pray is the Holy Spirit in you. That's, that's the difference. You see what I'm saying? And the one is centered on what I must do. The other one, one is centered on, God, please do this in me. I admit, I, I don't have a prayer life. I don't even want to pray. I find it hard to pray for my family. If that's you, you know what I want to say? Just say, yes, Lord, that's me. Please help me. I mean, you think God is fooled. <laughs> we just need to be honest. Say, Lord Jesus, please help me. This is your work in, in my heart. I, I open myself to you. Please help me. And I, I want to say, perhaps this year part of our journey is going to be just people spontaneously praying with each other. In the mornings, in homes, just getting together. Can I come pray with you over lunch times? Just praying. Just for five, ten minutes. Just getting together. And, and I believe certainly corporate prayer. We do need to get together as a church and pray. The prayer is exciting. All right. Secondly, in, in times of revival, what's evidenced is a rediscovery of the grace message, the gospel. Uh, one of the main uh, vehicles that helped the First Great Awakening in Northampton in Massachusetts was Jonathan Edwards. He preached a message in 1734 on Romans 4 verse 5 called Justification by Faith Alone. We are justified by faith alone, not by works. And he preached it and he preached it and he preached it and eventually people got it. Yes, it's all about Jesus. It's all about His work. It's not about me. Hey, Petri. <laughs> Sorry, I'm very excited. And then, for Wesley and Whitfield and all those guys in the, the, great, awa the great awakenings that we saw here, was in the basic understanding of salvation by grace rather than by moral effort. And it touched their own lives. And as God was setting them free, and they began to understand that something started to happen into the community. I'm not just trying to get people to make a decision. Choose Jesus. I'm not sure you can choose Jesus. You know why? Because I'm convinced that Jesus first chooses you. That's, I'm convinced of that. He reaches into your life and he says, Tox, I choose you. And then we respond and say, oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. 
The third thing that's evidenced in times of revival is renewed individuals. And, I, and Sprague points out, and he says that that's evidenced in, you can sense it in the church, that the leaders are a little bit different. They kind of, they revive themselves. They're excited about the things of God. They, they're full of joy. They, it's infectious. That's a key. And then he also says there, at the same time, it's not just about leaders and members. He says some, what happens in times of revival is that the least expected people start to get saved. <laughs> the ones that you say, oh, that person will never get saved. God just chooses them. And that excites everybody. Because then the people start to think, well, if God can do it with Colin, God can do it with anyone. <laughs> Isn't it true? And it excites the church. And there's this growing sense of, if God can touch that person, God can do anything. And it's like spontaneous combustion, and it starts to get, um, it spreads informally. There's a spiritual longing that starts to get, get um, generated in people's hearts because they start to see these things, start to see God move. And I think sometimes, in our, in, uh, certainly in the history of Forest Town, I think we've, 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 we've sometimes not celebrated things enough because we don't want to harp anything. You know what I'm saying? But I think we need to celebrate some things more. When people get saved, we need to celebrate it more. When people get healed, they celebrate it more. It's a wonderful thing to see God move. And let's not be so polite that we don't celebrate the right things, all right? And then fourthly, Sprague says also that even in counseling, the gospel is used on people's hearts. And what does he mean by that? He says, well, for those that are seeking, those that are new believers, those, those that are non-growing Christians, the gospel needs to be applied to our own lives. Remember what I've quoted so many times, Luther, saying, Beat the gospel into your own head daily. The gospel needs to set us free all the time. And so we all battle with, with legalism. So God wants to cut that away. We all can tend towards being licentious. And God wants to cut that away. The gospel truly on our hearts is what brings true liberty and freedom. And so even when we counsel people, we counsel them with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus that he set us free. And then he says, lastly, Ordinary instituted means of grace. And what does he mean by that? He means preaching, pastoring, worship, prayer. These are ongoing things that we just need to give ourselves to joyfully. And they are present when revival happens in an extraordinary way. There's extraordinary worship. I've said this before here. I want to say it again. Just to help Jill. Why do they still sing Bread of Heaven in, in, in rugby matches in Wales? Why do they sing Bread of Heaven? Take a guess. 1904, the whole community was so revived that they started singing Bread of Heaven. And it's still part of the rugby culture. It's an overflow of what happened in 1904. I said, for me, I said this in the vineyard last week, one of the keys for me of a revived church is people that worship. Why? Because people that know they have something to sing about want to sing with all of their hearts. When you know you've been touched by the grace of God, you want to sing. That's what revival does. Great times of revival have produced great, great songs because people have got something to sing about. I want to say to you, if you don't have anything to sing about when you come to church on Sunday... Please ask God to help you to see that you do have something to sing about. This great salvation that you have in Jesus. And so, um, 
I want to encourage you that we don't get involved too much in seeking methods to bring revival. You know, Billy Graham had these amazing crusades, and those were very wonderful. But some people have associated meetings and a style of doing things with revival. Unless you have that, it's not revival. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, many of you know, was also a Welshman, Joel. He's some, it's like, preached at uh, Westminster Chapel for many, many years. And he lived through something of the Welsh revival. He was convinced, he said, that people became too concerned of holding style, a particular style of meeting and singing certain hymns, because they said that's what happened in the Welsh revival. And if we want revival again, we've got to sing those same hymns and we've got to do that same style of meeting. And that's why he said, um, he was convinced that the best thing we can do to see revival come is to pray with all of our hearts and not worry about techniques, but just pray for the presence of God and for God to come. And I, I believe God does use some things temporarily to bring revival, to spark revival. You know, um, if you've read anything of Wesley and, Wesley and Whitfield, do you know they, they had these huge outdoor meetings? On the commons, 40,000 people used to come and hear Wesley preach. Outdoor. It's the first time the gospel was preached in the UK outdoors. You know what the amazing thing was? Is the only reason why they preached outdoors is because the Anglican church wouldn't let them in the buildings. That's the only reason. And now it's like we say, if we have outdoor meetings, that's the thing that's going to bring revival. No, they couldn't get to preach in the, in the church because the Anglicans didn't want them there because they didn't like what they were preaching. <laughs> Sorry to be so rude, but that's the truth. And there was things like uh, in America, in the Fulton Revival in New York in 1857, what sparked that revival was businessmen got together to pray at lunchtimes. They just felt the compulsion to pray together, and so they prayed, and God used that and sparked revival. And now I've had this so many times, I can't tell you. We must get the businessmen together to pray during the week, and it's going to bring revival. It might, but you understand what I'm trying to say? It's not the technique. It's not the thing. What it is, is God's presence. When people start seeking God for His presence alone, He'll use anything. He'll use businessmen that pray together. He'll use outdoor preaching. He'll use indoor preaching. He'll use worship. He'll use anything. I'm just saying to you, what is the thing that He's calling us to? What do we need to be doing? It's going to be different for us. But I'm convinced of this, that we can experience revival in this church. Not by trying very hard, but simply by trusting God. And when I say revival, I mean every family transformed from the inside out. I mean, I mean you radically enjoying a marriage that you've never enjoyed before. I mean the presence of God that's so tangible to you that your devotions are like, <laughs> they take your breath away. And the church will grow as a bonus. Amen?